back to Hosea, we'll continuing to work our way through this uh, minor prophet with a major message. Uh, I know it's uh, been weighty. I was sharing uh, maybe, maybe Wednesday evening. Uh, there's been several times that I've uh, been inclined to go away from a while and come back to it, but uh, hopefully uh, the Lord will sustain you and he will teach us through it. A very, very weighty um, book. I picked up in chapter 10 on Wednesday night. Uh, I came down to verse 11, 10 and wanted to save it verse 11 and beyond for this morning. Um, obviously for a, a larger uh, hearing uh, because it's important, but I want to read the entire chapter. Uh, before we uh, begin that, I, I want to say uh, about the, the study this week that uh, we all believe uh, in the inspiration of the Word of God, um, but occasionally the Lord uh, really brings that to bear in a text, uh, and you just do just a selection of the words used to communicate this truth are so profound, and that's been the effect on me this week, particularly uh, verse 11 and the verses that follow immediately there. Uh, when it, and I touched on this Wednesday night when the Lord says of Israel, she is a, a heifer well-trained. And just the selection of words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the prophet here just says so much, not only about Israel, but the inclinations uh, of the human heart. In fact, you could almost say this morning's message is a, is a portrait of repentance. And, and I was thinking this week that sometimes I think we make salvation too easy. We say, we cite right verses, we communicate right theology from the scriptures. Uh, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart in the Lord Jesus and God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And, and so we get them to recite that word and say, that's it, that's faith. You believe by faith, you cited the words, you're saved. And there's very little emphasis made on the radical, <laughs> the radical putting off of an old man and the radical nature of the new birth and the role of repentance uh, in that. And the passage today really is descriptive of, of how God brings about a restoration of his people to himself. And it is, for lack of a better word, brutal. <laughs> it is severe. And it is that because they have gone so deeply into idolatry and into the gratifying of the flesh, something radical has to happen to break their love affair with the flesh. Uh, that's what's striking to me about this passage. So let's, let's read these 15 verses and then I may comment just in review on verses 1 through 10, but primarily concentrate on verse 11 through 15. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. Pay specific attention here to the devastation going to, going to be brought about upon the idols. Dumb things. <laughs> not living things. He says, the Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. 
Surely now they will say, we have no king, as for we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, what can he do for us? And they speak mere words. With worthless oaths they make covenants, and judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Bethaven. Indeed, its people will mourn for it, and its idolatrous priests will cry out over it, over its glory, since it has departed from it. The thing itself will be carried to Assyria as tribute to King Jerob. Ephraim will be seized with shame, and Israel will be ashamed of its own counsel. And Samaria will be cut off with her king like a stick on the surface of the water. And also the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel will be destroyed and thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. And then they will say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills, fall on us. And from the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel, and there they stand. Will not the battle against the sons of iniquity overtake them in Gibeah? When it is my desire, I will chastise them and the people will be gathered against them when they are bound for their double guilt. And then our text for today, Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, but I will come over her fair neck with a yoke. I will harness Ephraim, Judah will plow, Jacob will harrow for himself. Sow with the view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness, break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way and your numerous warriors. Therefore, a tumult will rise among your people and all, and all your fortresses will be destroyed as Shaman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. When mothers were dashed in pieces with their children, thus it will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. Chapter 11 goes into God yearning now for his people and expressing his multitude of mercies, which we'll look at tonight. But let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the clarity of it, for the divine breathing out of it in the exact form which communicates precisely what you were saying, not only to the people of Israel in that day, but to the people in our day as well. And so we ask that you would grant us clarity of thought and clarity of insight and understanding this morning that you would remove the veil that to this very day tends to obscure these glorious truths and the, and the glory of your person. And so Father, we pray that these things would be removed, that we would feel both the weightiness and see beneath it the mercy, extraordinary mercy that you have extended not only to Israel, but to us as well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I picked up in verse 11, but one of the things that really set in motion, this message was just reiterating or rehearsing in my own mind uh, this strange description in verse 5. And I, I pointed out to you the idols that God would exercise such power and such <laughs> sovereignty in, in destroying a thing of, of, of metal, a thing with no life, no power, 
It's, all, it's almost as if someone might have deceived themselves and think, well, if it, it must be powerful, powerful if God exercised his powerful power to destroy it. It must have been somehow in competition with him. We know that idols are not at all in competition with our God. They are dumb and not living. They are, they are figments of our own corruption. In fact, in many ways, they are... They are they are representations or outward representations of our own self-exaltation. So they are no thing. So why would God exercise sovereign power and judgments to annihilate things of wood and gold and dust? Was he going out of his way to destroy the idols, just destroy the people? And so it's interesting to me. But you notice in verse 5 the results that's going to happen as he brings these idols to dust. And it is that they, they fear for the calf of Betham. Indeed, its people will mourn for it, and its idolatrous priests will cry out over it. Why? Because in its destruction, they will see its glory departing. And then he almost insults the thing itself in verse 6 by calling the idols the thing. The thing itself. This idol that had so much glory that is going to be disintegrated right before your eyes, that thing itself is going to be carried away to Assyria. And I shared Wednesday night to where perhaps the king of Assyria would reduce it into its component parts and add it to his treasury. It's an idol. It's, it's, it's useless. It has no power whatsoever. But they were in love with it. They adored this idol, so much so that when it was destroyed, they cry out and grieve and mourn because the glory that they saw in it is departing now and they're grieving because of this. To these people, it's alive. And it's been taken down and, and they've devoted themselves and they've created or been cultivated a genuine affection for these idols. And I made the application Wednesday night. So have you for yours. And so have I for mine. I loved my sin before I was a Christian. I loved my idols. I had a genuine affection cultivated by many years of practicing a love for my sinfulness and for my self-exaltation. I was satisfied and content in my pride, gratifying the desires of my flesh. I loved, I had an affection for the things that I elevated above God in my life, which was just as deserving of the judgment of God as Israel was in their day for doing the same thing. And let me just say this morning with all my heart, so did you. So did you. That's why you pursued them so long. You loved your idols, and that is exactly what they were doing. And so that, that's the context in which I began to read uh, verse 11, 10, really. When God says through the prophet here to his people, when it is my desire, when I desire, I will chastise them. And the people will be gathered against them when they are bound for their double guilt. And then these verses, Ephraim is a trained heifer, and this is where I'm drawing this affection, who loves to thresh. They love it. And they've been trained to love it. 
There's a, been a cultivation in, the, in Ephraim to condition them to, to have a genuine affection <coughs> for their threshing. And it's really interesting. I, I looked up the word, and there are multiple ways to train someone, but this was interesting. But to train is, is, is literally to teach a person or animal a particular skill or type of behavior through practice and instruction over a period of time. Now, you can do that, we know, with positive reinforcement. You, you condition them, they, they act rightly according to your desire, you reward them. They learn to recognize the immediate gratification to right behavior. And so you train them to act a certain way because they're anticipating gratification. Or you can do the negative. When they act wrongly, you withhold something and they feel the pain of that. So they learn, don't withhold this, don't act this way because I suffer when I act this way. So, so we cultivate and we train by, by laying those things out. And it just strikes me that God says of Ephraim that they are a trained heifer. They have been, they have been conditioned now. To, to do the threshing, they've been, that's what they were being trained for was to thresh, the oxen would have been, but they have conditioned themselves now to love the threshing. I was reading up on some of this. We know they, they use threshing instruments. In fact, they used them in this period as well, but the preferred, I understand, one of the preferred methods of threshing was simply to have the ox walking upon, upon the grain, or the, whether it's corn or whether it would be wheat or whatever. And they would find a flat place, preferably a rocky place, but certainly they would work to pack it down where it's hard and the dirt doesn't get mixed with the grain. And they would simply stake out the ox with his yoke and let him walk around uh, upon the grain. And by the pressure of his hooves and the friction separate the grain from its head or from the stalk from the grain and the heavier grain would settle to the bottom. And as a consequence of that, uh, the, the, the fodder, as it were, would rise to the top. And you've heard in the scriptures uh, not to, in fact, it was a wrong, a sin to muzzle the ox as it threshed. And so the incentive for the ox to, to, to thresh was that he had a constant source of food. He just walked in circles, all the while pressing out the grain, but producing for himself fodder, and he could feed on it. You train the ox to thresh and to love to thresh because he got his belly filled every time he threshed. But did the, but did the owner care for the appetite of the oxen? No. He was looking for the grain. And he cultivated and trained the oxen to act in his own best interest, all the while oblivious to the reality that the master was the one profiting from the fruit of, what, of the oxen's labor. And so you can imagine now the spiritual significance of that when God says to Israel, she is a trained heifer. She loves to thresh. And that was just struck me. She's an unmuzzled, unmuzzled, essentially, she's an unmuzzled ox filling her belly with the fruit of her labor in the service of her idols. As I said, the threshing separated the grain from its, stalk, from its stalk, and while the grain being heavier settled, all, the, the, the oxen thought himself to be profiting by his threshing. Obviously, the, the ox is deceived and is oblivious 
to her own exploitation. He calls her a heifer, so I'm using the word her here. And she thinks herself the singular beneficiary of her activity of threshing. Yea, she grows to love it. And so has idolatry had that effect upon the people of Israel. Interestingly, the dumb ox with constant food sees her laboring as for herself, while her master profits the greater by reaping to his own advantage the grain, as I said, or the fruit of her labor. And so God counters Israel here and rebukes her affection for her yoke by, by reminding or by removing that present yoke, which is what he's doing to the, altar, the idols. That's why I think he's destroying the idols openly and in front of their face because he's, he's breaking now, he's pulling her away, her affections away from her idols. She loves to thresh. Her long history of idolatry had cultivated in her now this idea that she was the beneficiary of her idolatry. They had cultivated by these gratifications of the flesh that somehow she was the one to be advantaged here. All the while, the wickedness behind her idolatries was producing a wicked fruit. And so had her affection for her idols become that God is openly bringing her idols to dust, to rip her affections away from those idols. I shared Wednesday night how I set up things in my life. Uh, it would bring me happiness and joy and fulfillment and contentment. But every single thing that I put in place, God would literally knock out from under me. And I mean aggressively. I don't mean he would prompt my uneasiness in my spirit, he would take it away from me. I've used the analogy of golf. I, I found so much gratification. The, the sport of golf was just right up my alley. It, it demanded focus and concentration and precision and ability and all those things. And I first game was 132 and I went in a very short time to shooting in the low 80s most of the time, even broke par once. But suddenly I went the other way. And I was going up and up and up. And finally, my, the last game before I just broke my clubs was over 100. And it's like God was saying, no, no, you're not, get, you're not getting away that easy. There's nothing, Larry, that will gratify this hole in your heart in this world. And I will not, because I am your God, allow you to fill that with anything else. So whatever I put in place, he would slap it away violently and severely, not always gently. And it seems to me that's what he's doing in Israel's life here. Notice how he does this. First, away, first that he counters by removing their present yoke. This is what the destruction of the idols is. And they had been in the, serve, the yoke of the idol service for a long time. But notice in verse 11 that God doesn't just deliver them from the yoke of the idols, but he says, I'm putting my yoke on you. And that was stunning to me this week. Look what he says, Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, but I will come over her fair neck. That's almost a mockery. I will come over her fair neck with a yoke. I will harness Ephraim. 
So, so you've been under the yoke of your idols and really self-created idols and you've grown to have an affection for them so much so that I, that I will have to destroy the idols in front of you but then also to bring your affection away from them I've got to put my yoke on you. No, notice this, this is not an not a easy yoke and it's not a light one. In fact, a yoke essentially is God's implement now in Israel's life for retraining. They have cultivated and been trained by the idols and the yoke they wore to produce wicked fruit. And God destroys those idols and he says, now I'm putting my yoke upon you and now I'm going to train you in a very different way. Notice as well that it is initially a heavy and burdensome yoke. In fact, Really, the idea of the fair neck there is sort of reminiscent of his earlier statement in this chapter. chapter. She's a luxuriant vine. She loves to thresh, and her yoke is easy. And she has a fair, prosperous, lovely neck. And she likes it. But I've destroyed her idols. I've ripped off that easy yoke. And now I'm laying a heavy one upon that fair neck of Israel. He means violently as if it were to draw her affections away finally and fully from her idols. God intends not for Israel to ever love her idols again. And so the burden, the yoke is heavy. Notice as well that that idea of a fair neck there gives the ideal of not only a mocking rebuke of their pride and arrogance, but also suggested of the chafing and the discomfort that will accompany God's rebuke and his discipline. My yoke's going to be heavy. It's going to be heavy. And I think about this in terms of calling us out, as it were, from our godless lives, our idolatrous lives. But notice it's interesting here that they're not going to thresh now. They're going to plow and they're going to harrow. And so now the yoke has weight behind it. It's one thing to walk around the threshing floor with just the yoke on to guide you. But God says, I'm putting the yoke on you. And behind that yoke, I'm putting the burden. Attached to that yoke is going to be a burden. I'm going to put a plow and a harrow. If you know anything about the field, you know, in fact, I've seen a tractor that didn't have the strength to pull its own plow because the plow would sink so deep and they had to raise the plow up and do it in, in sections because the tractor was weak when it met the resistance of the soil. That's the imagery here. God says, I'm bringing a yoke upon your neck. You've been threshing for the idols and you love it. And it's easy and you feel your belly and you gratify your appetites. And I've destroyed your idols. I've ripped that yoke off of your neck. And on, on that fair neck, I'm bringing a heavy yoke and it is going to be burdensome. There's weight behind it. There is affliction and chafing with this, with this yoke. It's heavy. It's burdensome. It's going to be labor ahead. Note here the absence of, of, of an immediate and ongoing gratification of appetites as well. On the threshing floor, the ox got to satisfy his hunger all along the way. He could just walk in circles and anytime he had a little hunger pain, he could just go down and take up a little bit of that fodder and chew on that. And he never got hungry the whole time he was doing it. In fact, he, he thought he was gaining the advantage. Well, I got news for you. There's nothing to eat when you're pulling a plow and when you're harrowing a field. And so there's this immediate 
This immediate ceasing of this self-gratifying, momentary gratification, feeling of the belly instinctfully. That's not going to happen. You're going to wear a yoke. It's going to be heavy. It's going to be burdensome. And you're not going to be able to satisfy the immediate, the instinctive appetites of your bellies. I'm depriving you of this immediate gratification, which is how they were trained, by the way. It's how they got trained. It's how you and I got trained to continue in sin because we found pleasure in it in the moment and we liked the pleasure. So we sinned again, got more pleasure, sinned again, got more pleasure. We learned to attach sin to pleasure. And so we learned to love our sin because we love our pleasure. And so until God took the yoke off of our neck and he put his own yoke back on and it was a heavy one early, wasn't it? I've heard people talk about the liberation. Yes, that is true. But right into the Christian life, you realize something real quick. You may be born again, but your affections are still set in this world. You still like the things of this world. And so that burden gets heavy. The Lord sinks the plow and he starts depriving you of this instant gratification of the fleshly appetites. By starving out the flesh, we're putting to death the flesh. And so it was here. It is also... This plowing is necessary for a, sure, for a sure harvest, but a harvest yet in the distant future. So they were learning here of the labor involved in sowing and the anticipation and the patient waiting for the harvest. This is what Israel, this is how they got trained wrongly because they, they got used to the idea that I don't have to do much sowing, but I can reap a great harvest. And God is reestablishing now this principle that there is a sowing in this life that has a harvest yet in the future and that there is a patient doing of righteousness to reap that fruitful harvest in the future. That's what Israel had gotten away from. They had learned to satisfy these immediate lusts their flesh, and he's breaking them, as it were, from this. It's a word to Israel in verse 12 in regards to this yoke they would be wearing and the harnessing of God. Notice he uses the word sow there. He sows, sows with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness. So they were, this is the point that really struck me this week because our instinct is to get out from under that yoke as quickly as possible. We don't like weight. We don't like labor. We don't like exercising patience. We like nothing about the plowing and the harrowing yoke. We would rather thresh like the oxen did on the threshing floor. And I think in verse 12, you see the idea that here that we're to bear the burden. It's essentially as though he's saying to Israel, bear the bur burden affliction as the discipline of the Lord. So with a view to righteousness, I'm drawing that also from Hebrews chapter 12. You'll remember the text very well, verses 10 and 11, talking about the discipline of God. But what does it say there? Despise not the discipline of God for he disciplines those whom he loves. And he goes on in that passage to say that the severity of the discipline of God for those who are exercised by it produces what? The fruit, uh, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That's what he says here. When you're bearing the load, Israel, when you're feeling the pain and the chafing and the ground is offering its resistance and you're not gratifying your belly's appetite in the moment, bear it, bear it, because under that load, God will produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So look forward while you're bearing it to this righteousness that is to come. So with a view to righteousness. And I can't say more to the Christian in our day today than that. Bear the yoke. 
bear the yoke. I realize that there is affliction in this world broadly as a consequence of sin having come into the world. There will be suffering in this world until Christ returns and this world, the curse is lifted from this world. I realize as well that there is affliction that comes into the life of others simply for the glory of God. For instance, the man born blind whom the disciples ask, why was he born blind? His sin or his parents? And Jesus says, neither, but that the glory of God might be manifest in him or through him. I realize that there is affliction coming in our lives in different ways, but when the affliction is upon our backs, as it were, bear it patiently. So with the burden and the affliction in our lives with the view to righteousness. And I'm convinced in all my heart that the burden, the, the yoke that God places on us is, is designed to separate us from our affections for the things of this world. To, to diminish or to exhaust our appetite for what this world offers and to increase our appetite for what God provides ultimately himself, but certainly the glory and the righteousness of Christ. So with a view to righteousness... I wrote this as I was thinking about that. We treat the sinner's prayer often as an arrangement of magical words, the reciting of which constitutes a transition from death to life, completely divorced from a personal experience and realization of just how radical the new birth is. We might say repent, but this has, but has the yoke of God's conviction come upon us? Is there affliction of spirit? Has the yoke of old been revealed as the soul-destroying deception that it really was? Is there a yielding? to the burden and labor of our souls as, we, as the easy yoke of sin has been thrown off and replaced by God's yoke of discipline. If you're a believer, you have experienced and perhaps even today are experiencing God's dis disciplining hand. And sometimes that is severe. And I think often according to the attachment you still have to the things of this world. You, if you love the things of this world, if your affections are set upon the things of this world, you can, you can trust that God is patient and merciful, but you can also trust that he will, he will be severe when necessary to detach you from the affections that are alienating you and robbing you of the joy of Christ. So with a view to righteousness. Enduring with this view of righteousness. The righteous, two things there, I think, could be the God's righteousness in our burden. So we so recognizing that the burden that we bear is, is demonstrative of the righteousness of God. And it could be the righteousness which God will bring about in our lives by means of his discipline, heavy though it may be, according to our obstinate spirits. So, so there's a yoke to be born here. If God is going to rescue his people, he must first demolish the thing of their adoration, but then he must demolish their affection for the thing. And the way he demolishes it is with his own yoke and with his own burden and with the weightiness of his own burden and by robbing them or taking away from them this capacity for immediate fleshly gratification. This is how we call in the New Testament sanctification. This is how he separates you from the world unto himself. And so if you're enduring hardship and affliction and difficulties and discipline today, bear it, bear it patiently with a view to righteousness.
the righteousness that God will produce in our lives through it. View it also in accordance to kindness. That's an interesting phrase as well. Reap, he says, in accordance with kindness. I think he means here, endure this burden in a manner that anticipates a good harvest. Understanding that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance, Romans 2, 4. And so as I'm wearing this this yoke and as I'm feeling this weight of the burden, when I feel the resistance against uh, working for the Lord in that sense, when I feel that, bear it patiently, endure. Understanding that the affliction that you are experiencing is itself as extraordinary as it is, might be demonstrative of the kindness of God, which is that he is using that to bring you to repentance, to bring you to turn away from the things of this world in which you are finding your joy and you're setting your affections upon. So he tells them to reap in accordance to kindness. In other words, let this have its perfect work in me. That's a hard thing to say when we're suffering, isn't it? Very rarely are we inclined to say, Oh Lord, let the suffering remain because I know that the suffering is exhausting me of my affections for this world and I only want to have affections for you. And so, Lord, leave those in place. This is what I think Paul understood about his thorn when he realized the purpose of it. And that's why he said, I will rather than rejoice. Because in my weakness, then Christ is made strong. And his interest seemed to be that the strength of Christ would be manifest in his life, not his own, which would have ultimately led to pride. So they were to endure it with a view to righteousness. They were to reap in a manner that acknowledges and understands it is the kindness of God. And then he gives this instruction, break up the fallow ground, break up your fallow ground, bear the burden to that end. Know that the affliction is necessary to prepare the heart for a harvest of righteousness. Plow up, turn up that fallow ground. Well, if you're an ox, you ain't going to do too much good turning up fallow ground unless there's a plow attached to you. And I'm pretty sure if you're an ox and they bring that plow out and start attaching it to the yoke, that ox has experienced long enough to know that I'm about to endure some hard work. And if the ground's harder, it's going to be even harder work. There's labor ahead for, for plowing up the fallow ground. So if you think this morning that you're going to plow up or turn up that fallow ground for fruitful, uh, fruitfulness later on without any work, without any without any discomfort, without any, any labor, you're deceiving yourself. You're wanting, to, you're wanting to thresh. You're not willing to pull the plow. You're not willing to wear the yoke. But if, you, if God, by his grace, is going to provide for you to break up the fallow ground in your life and in my life, it's going to require a yoke. And attached to that yoke is going to require weight. And attached to those is going to require investment and some pain. And some discomfort in the Christian life. Turn up the fallow ground. This last one here. Bear the burden. Bear this burden because it's urgent. What does he say there? For it's time to seek the Lord. You've had your, you've had your years of idolatry. You've, you've, you've been trained to this. You've enjoyed your threshing. You've enjoyed your easy life. And you've prospered. All the while you have exploited my mercies towards you. Now it's time to seek the Lord. Your idols are gone. 
Your easy yoke has been removed. You're wearing now the burden of my severe discipline. Time to seek the Lord. It's urgent. Endure the burden. Psalm 95, 8 says, Today, if you would hear his voice, harden not your hearts. If we find ourselves afflicted under the heavy hand of God's discipline, that's the time to seek the Lord. If we are obstinate and resist, we will just chafe ourselves. We will just injure ourselves. He says to them, endure the burden because now it's time to seek the Lord. There is no more, there is no more life for you in pursuing the idols. It'll be your destruction. And he's already forecasted that was coming upon them very clearly. Israel, you have come to the place now to where you must seek God if you are to, if you are to live. If you don't, you will be judged. Verse 12, bear the burden as well till he comes. This was, this was really helpful to me. How long should I bear under this affliction, O Lord? How long will I pull against this heavy yoke and this heavy burden? And the Lord's answer to me is right here, until he comes. Until he comes to reign righteousness. That may be until he has his work completed by that yoke in this life and our life bears fruit to the glory of God or whether he says bear and pull against it with a view to righteousness in the hope of kindness. Keep pulling it to the end of your days until finally the Lord comes and he rains down on you this righteousness. He might even be a messianic implication here. How long are we to carry this affliction and this burden, O Lord, until Shiloh comes, until Christ comes, who will take the burden, who will take upon himself that yoke, and whose faithfulness in bearing it will produce a righteousness which will cover your sins. So there is clearly, to me, messianic implications here. So how long do you bear the burden that you're bearing today? Until he comes. Until he comes. Either as he comes and relieves you of that burden and you liberates you into the fullness of the glory and the grace of God. Or until he sanctifies you to become more like Christ. Finally, in verse 13, I'll do these quickly. You might come back and catch these tonight. But in verse 13, what's the contrast? What is this contrasted with? Well, he goes back to what they had been doing. What does he say? You have plowed wickedness. That's what you've been plowing. You want to chafe and, and gripe about the plow now and the heavy burden of the yoke I put upon you. You've been, you've been plowing. And what were you plowing then? Wickedness. And what was your harvest? Injustice. You've eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way and in your numerous warriors. Therefore, a tumult will rise among your people and all your fortresses will be destroyed. Just do those in summary. He asked several questions. What have you been plowing? What have you been plowing? And what have you been reaping? And what have you been eating? And in whom have you trusted? And then verses 14 through 15 is essentially this last question. What will become of this? It's what you've been doing. It's what you were doing when you were apart from Christ. Having come to Christ, will we still plow the same way and reap the same things and eat the same things? And trust the same people or organizations, or will we wear the yoke of God? Will we endure the affliction that His gracious, loving, measured, disciplined hand puts upon us to bring Him to Himself? Will we bear it? Will we endure it with a view to righteousness? 
Will we view it in light of it being the kindness of God which leads us to repentance? Will we, will we view it with urgency? Will we, will we pull the plow to break up the fallow ground of our own hearts that the truth might bear fruit in our lives again? And so I think this message just kind of reminds me that when I'm talking to those who are sinners, I want to be really careful uh, about telling them that if you say these words, God will relieve all your trouble. Because I'll be honest with you, the burden after I became a Christian in some ways is heavier because the implications are known to me much greater. When I was a sinner, I was sinning and threshing just like the ox and loving it. I wasn't aware that it was a heavy load at all, although I was filling my belly to my own destruction. But when God removed that yoke and put his own yoke upon me, then I began to realize that the weight he has me pulling now is to my own good. I am, and you are as Christians, sowing with a view to righteousness. Certainly the righteousness of Christ in our life, but the future, the future, the future becoming what Jesus has caused us to be in union with him. So stand with me this morning. The Lord always makes application of his words in ways that I didn't anticipate, and I pray that he's done that this morning for you as well. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, with trembling and, and humility, we thank you for the burdens that you have provided for in our own lives and your wisdom and your love and your grace and your mercy. Father, if we are bearing them, they are not there arbitrarily. They are not there as coincidentally. Father, it may be that they are there as an instrument by which you are detaching us from the former affections and shifting our heart to find its satisfaction, its joy, its fullness in you. Lord, in these moments of invitation, as we reflect upon your word, Lord, I pray that you might speak to every heart and that every heart might yield to that which you have spoken. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.